Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and your favorite media. I'm one of your lore-focused hosts, Joe Perez, and I'm joined by my stupendous uh, co-host, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm still upset that they estimated the weight of some of the Jaegers from Pacific Rim as so high that the material that they're supposedly made out of wouldn't be able to support them. Also, like at one point they say that one of the Jaegers is made out of pure iron and it weighs seven, like 750,000 tons. I'm like, that's, that's more than the Great Pyramid of Giza, and it's an iron framework. It would bend on its first step. Anyway, hi. Yeah, we think about kaijus and Jaegers quite a bit here. Uh, we're probably going to wind up talking about that at some point. <laughs> if they never do a Godzilla meets Pacific Rim movie, why are we here? Soon. Soon. Did you know in the comics, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers are fighting Godzilla and his monsters now? Oh, yeah, I've seen that one, yeah. 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 The, uh, well, the Dragon Zord was basically a Godzilla suit with stuff strapped to it, so I'm not surprised. More or less. But that's not what we're here to talk about this week. Here we're going to be answering some of your questions. We've done a few theme episodes over the last couple of weeks, so we have some questions to catch up on. Again, if you have questions for this podcast or any of our podcasts, you can go ahead and send those into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Specify the show that it is for. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can take those questions and toss them into our Discord channel, our Patreon Q and podcast questions channel to be specific. We tend to look there first and give our Patreon supporters first dibs on uh, basically getting their question answered uh, as a way of saying thank you for helping us keep the lights on. And if you can't support us on Patreon, but you support us by listening to us and you still want to ask us a question, we do have a Q and podcast questions channel for non-Patreon supporters where we also look. Uh, again, just specify the show. Uh, we've covered this before. Matt has a larger wingspan and larger hands than I do, which makes thumb wrestling very, very difficult. Plus, I throw stuff in his face like pepper or, you know, whatever. The pocket like, what sand I- was the worst. Yeah, I know. I, I watched Bloodsport too much as a kid. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, we're not going to have a Kumite today. Instead, we're going to be answering questions. First up is going to be from our friend Falrin. On the topic that I don't think gets enough attention is where did Anduin go after the events of Shadowlands? All we can say for certain is that he didn't stay in the Maw with Sylvanas, and he didn't go back to Stormwind, or did he? In the Shadows Rising novel, he adopted the persona of Jarek, a common Stormwind foot soldier. I think he's done it again, only this time he's adopted it full-time. This gives him a chance to understand his people in a way he never could while living up in the castle. And there's a crisis in Storm, and there's a crisis in Storm, and truly needs him. He's right there. We don't know. So the the thing is, we haven't technically hit the time between expansions yet. Canonically, we've just resolved the Jailer. We've just resolved the Sylvanas uh, judgment and what's happened with her. And even then, there is a a cinematic, if you haven't seen it, where there is a discussion between Sylvanas and Anduin about kind of specifically this. Now, whether or not he goes back after this and what happens afterwards, we don't know yet, but we can maybe make some speculations. We know that he's questioning himself, not in so much of, 
you know, what he did. He understands what he did. He's, I don't want to say he's made peace with it. That's going to be a while probably for him and the way his personality works. But there's a thing he says to, to her when they're talking is, I understand these actions weren't really my own, but I worry that there was a part of me that liked it. And I think that he has to come to grips with the fact that he is not the timid child that he was. And this has been, I think, the culmination of a long story arc for Anduin. And I could be wrong, but I think the writing has been kind of on the wall since Pandaria. And it's been sort of building slowly in bits and pieces until it got to this this traumatic event that I think is kind of going to push it over the edge. He was a very passive child, stubborn in, in a lot of ways, had opinions, tried to uh, teach his father and step up uh, in a lot of uh, a lot of ways that were not necessarily confrontational. They were very non-confrontational, uh, but tried to get his point across. As time went on, he became a little more, I don't want to say the image of his father, but he basically is slowly becoming what his father, I think, would have been had his father been tempered and not had that soul splitting incident and having to reclaim himself. He's starting to learn that sometimes direct action needs to be taken. He's starting to learn where there are some lines in the sand uh, that you have to cross or some that you just don't. He's beginning to learn that there might be a side of him that appreciates that direct action and that decisiveness, because that's one of the things, especially over the last couple of years that Anduin has been sort of, plagued with, right? He's had advisors. Why has he had advisors? Because, well, one, kings have advisors, but two, he's had a little bit of a level of indecisiveness. And that's kind of where Jarek comes from as well, too, because he feels like he can't make a good decision because he doesn't understand the common folks and sometimes wants to escape the burdens of being king and just be a common folk, to be somebody on the streets, to be somebody that's just living that life and is trying hard to you know, understand what they're going through with everything that happened with jailer, the horribleness of it, the horribleness of being piloted and forced to do things and him questioning, maybe there's a part of me that liked it. I think he's starting to realize that maybe there's a part of him that doesn't like being so passive and indecisive. And this might be a character culmination point for him. What do you think so far, Matt? Am I out far off the mark? Am I, am I completely out of left field here? I don't know if you're completely off the mark, but I think you're over focusing on, into in supposed passivity, which I don't believe is textually supported. Okay. Um, if we look at and- Anduin in the various times he's appeared, yes, as a child, he didn't get to do much because he was a child. Like, you know, in this, the whole thing with uh, Anixia and all that. If we use the comic book as an example, he's obviously more active in the death of Anixia than he is in the game. Mm-hmm. But his appearances after his father's return, he's not, there's not a ton of passivity there. Um, his first big story arc of the new status quo is Mr. Pandaria. He is as far from passive in Mr. Pandaria as it is possible for a non-player character to get. Um, the only time he doesn't, the only time he sits back and lets anything happen is when he has been crushed by a bell and can't do anything. Like he runs away from the, both the Alliance and the Horde in Jade Forest to go see things from his own perspective going so far as to use mind control on Alliance soldiers who are trying to get him back home. Uh, he then, we meet him in uh, the, the Temple of the White Tiger, where he is directly confronting and arguing against Taran Zhu. Um, and we see that he, 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 he brings his arguments directly to the White Tiger itself. Uh, we then see his direct and physical interaction with Garrosh Hellscream's attempt to use the Divine Bell where he, he straight up confronts the guy, even though he hasn't got a prayer in, in anything of taking on Garage Hellscream in a fight. Like, no chance. His father? Yeah, his father could have fought Garage. I maintain to this day that had Garage and Varian met in combat, Garage would have ended up on his butt. That, that Varian just simply would have outclassed him. Uh, but, but he was not his father, and he had no prayer, and yet he still physically ran in and hit the Divine Bell with the mallet and destroyed it causing his his own injury, which he then had to spend the rest of the expansion recovering from. This is all active. None of this is passive. If anything, <clears throat> I think we should look at the difference between Anduin as a person and Anduin as a monarch. Because I think you're right about the passivity when he's king. Yeah. And I think that the reason he's, he's passive when he's king is 
that he goes from defining himself to a certain degree in opposition to his father and the role that will be expected of him versus his not knowing how to define himself once he takes on the role. Anduin has no idea how to be king. He knows how to be forceful. He knows how to be principled. He knows how to be, you know, to a certain degree, a person of action, a person who takes action. But that's when it's just him and his conscience. Look at when he is king and suddenly it's the entire kingdom and the alliances that that kingdom has made. Anduin, as a person, is forceful mm-hmm. and, and willing to, like, you know, he can call down the power of the light to, like, save his father from, like, the very brink of death. He can confront Twilight. You know, that's fine. But as king, he, he's, he's, he's literally floundering. He does not know what to do. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's more what I was trying to get at. So. Yeah, no, no, and I'm, so that's why I'm saying I don't disagree with it. I just think the emphasis needs to be on what, as king. What we're, what we're seeing is that Anduin has finally come to a, a place where he has decided, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't, I've never, <sighs> when you lose a parent, Anduin grew up with one parent, and that mm-hmm. parent wasn't always around, but he, he just had the one. And that parent was therefore everything Anduin had to define himself against in terms of what it meant to be a Rin, what it meant to be king, what it meant to be a man. He didn't have the example of his mother. He's never like met or spoken to his mother because she died when he was a baby. Didn't have his uncle Uther. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't have his uncle Uther because Uther died before he was even born. Um, <clears throat> didn't have any of these figures. The only one he had to define himself as the only example of in his life of a Rin was his father. The only model for kingship was his father. And he knows he isn't his father. And that's not a negative and it's not a positive. It's simply a fact. Anduin is a different person than Varian. And he hasn't yet learned how, what kind of king will Anduin be is something that has not, it still hasn't ironed out. We see this in Battle for Azeroth where He's at his best when he stops trying to be anybody but himself. And I think we really see that in Before the Storm with the Jarek persona. Yeah. The Jarek persona is is strange in that it is not a deception, despite the fact that he is pretending to be somebody he isn't. Because it is him no longer pretending to be who he is. Because he has no idea who that person is. He does not know who King Anduin Rin is. He's never been king before, and now that he is, he, he's trying to do what he thinks kings do based on what he saw his father do. But his father, he is not his father. And I think one of the best things about the end of Shadowlands when we see the two figures who appear to him is, yes, his father appears to him, but so does Varrock Sorfang. Yep. And, and I don't think he thinks of Varrock Sorfang as a father figure. I think he thinks of Varric Sorfang as another example of how to lead. Well, not only that, but there's the moments that he shared with Sarfang where Sarfang definitely demonstrated, I think, that he understood Anduin's position better than anybody else. Yeah, and he also just he also demonstrated that he understood what that Anduin did not understand things yet. Mm-hmm. There's a part where Anduin is trying to say that he's trying to defend the the way the orcs behaved, and Varric cuts him off. He's like, no. He's like, you don't understand. This was this, you know, we can't move forward until we acknowledge that we were wrong. And that's something I think Anduin needs to understand, needed to understand that, needed to hear it. And there's more, there's, there's a lot more, but my point is just, we are at a place now where, where Anduin finally understands what it is to regret what he did, not, not somebody else's actions, not the, the legacy of the past the dirt on his own hands, the blood on his own hands, even if, yes, he was under someone else's control. Yes, these were not actions he took of his own free will, but he can still look down and remember stabbing the Arbiter in the chest. He can still look at everything. Not the Arbiter, Sorry, Carestria, you're right. Sorry, my my bad, the Archon. But, But all of that stuff, everything he did under the Jailer's control, he clearly remembers. Yeah, and he was present. He was there. He saw it all. Yeah. So he he now has that understanding that, that Varian and Sorfang had that he didn't of what it is to be guilty of something, of what it is to feel guilty, whether or mm. not 
You can you can make any kind of argument for the justification or rationale, but up until now, Anduin had never done that. Had never been that. And there's an old saying, and I can never remember who said it, but it's you must have lived an enviable life or a pitiable one to know nothing of regret. And Anduin, simply by the nature of his life to that point, did not have actions he himself had taken part in that he could regret. Like he he could regret maybe that things didn't go the way he wanted them to. But never before did he have to actually search his own soul. Like, you know, am I, am I a monster? Am, am I, you know, what is, what is it in me that enjoyed this? Did, did any of me enjoy this? Did, did the rush of power get to me? In, in a way, it's very hard to be a king if you don't have blood on your hands. Because you have to be, you're responsible for the lives and deaths of your subjects. And it's one thing for to be on paper, like... You know, at the end of, of Battle for Azeroth, Anduin is responsible for the deaths of a lot of his people, but it's very dispassionate. It's it's something that was very hard to, like, internalize. But now, that's right there. That's well, right there in his psyche. He now not only understands it intellectually, he feels it. And that's a change that is going to be seen in the characterization wherever he ends up whatever he's doing if he's if he's not back in stormwind by the time we go and do start dragonflight wherever he has been whatever he's doing is going to be very akin to when varian was riding around looking for garona it's it's a, a period where whatever he tells himself he's looking he's looking into what his soul is and i think that that's that's an interesting part of all of this there's there's some other things that I think feed into this as well. Like reading the Sylvanas book, I think also gives some some light on that because before he was had the the Mornblade sh- thrust upon him, before the fragmented soul of Arthas was used to control him and used uh, to pilot him uh, and and have him do these awful things, he had some very deep conversations with Sylvanas where she recounted her experiences growing up to the point of her undeath and things that happened after it. And combining that with the conversation that they have in the Maw currently, like where we currently are in the timeline, it he has further examples of sometimes you have to make decisions that are bad for some, but good for the vast majority of others. Sometimes you have to make the hard choice. And to Rossi's point, and this is basically what I was trying to get at earlier. So thank you. It's that he really hasn't had to do that. Like he's been trying to find this middle ground, the soft, the soft spot to land. And now he's starting to realize that you can't always do that. He's got all the weight of his own actions on it now too, where if he had done something more decisive, would this have happened? He's got the own self doubt and everything else. There's uh, I think it's what King, I think it's what, King Richard the Fourth was the Shakespeare play. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Uh, that is something that he has to deal with. That's something that most leaders have to deal with, especially in the Warcraft universe. All of them have done something. None of them are innocent as far as like pure lives go. Uh, and he's got to figure out what that means to him and how he can move forward, how he processes that, how he returns to being a leader, how he returns to being a king. And that's what we're going to start to see, I think, moving forward. I don't think it's the last we see him for a while. Um, I think that there's going to be some things that will probably pop up either before or during Dragonflight that will uh, give us hints to the advancement of Anduin's story, if not just outright telling us what winds up happening. But we don't know what that looks like yet. We do know that he is not going back to Stormwind. Not immediately. He says as much. So where that winds up, we don't know. It's Henry the Fourth, by the way. Henry the Fourth, thank you. I was like, who the hell is Richard the Fourth? They didn't think there was a Richard the Fourth. I'm yeah. like sitting here having like a mild, having a mild panic many, trying to remember. Too many, too many monarchs that have plays named after him. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I think that is there anything else you want to add to that? Anything else no, that needs no. to be contextualized? Okay. I, I think I ranted quite a bit. <laughs> no, I think it was good. Uh, so we're gonna move on to the next one. Uh, I was reading the Before the Storm, and something caught my attention. When Anduin is passing around the small piece of Azerite, Velen remarks that for a moment he thought it was a piece of a Naru. It is not, but the sensation is similar. Please forgive me if this has already been addressed, but I wonder what you make of this. With Azerite being the essence of Azeroth, could the Naru perhaps be an essence of whatever world place they come from? I know that they are empowered by the light and are sometimes considered light incarnate, but we know that it is not necessarily true. 
could the Naru have formed a uh, form similar to Azerite and somehow be the essence of some other world soul? And this is from Ark, who is a proud dwarf hunter. What do you think, Matt? Do you think that there's... On the planet Argus, there was uh, a gemstone that's so ancient that it predated the society that lived on Ar- on Argus at the time. Uh, this is 25,000 or so years ago. That society was ruled by a triumvirate uh, be- consisting of Archimonde, uh, Velen, and Kil'jaeden. But before that society even existed, before that that realm had been created there was other there were other societies on this world there was it had its own history that goes back so far that the people on it at that time knew nothing of them one of the legacies was a crystal uh and it's called the atamal crystal we don't know what the atamal crystal exactly but when he touched it velen saw visions that connected him in the, to the light in a way he had never been before giving him a gift that the Naru do not possess, namely that of prophecy. The Naru do not see the future, but Velen could. He could see possible alternate futures. He could try to discern which one was the one true future, which is not something the Naru can do. The Naru are not capable of looking forward in that way because they are so bound to the light that they only see one possibility. That crystal called the Naru to them. The Naru ship that came for Velen and his followers came because of his contact with that crystal. And that crystal was later on used on our, on the trip that the, uh, the Eridar exiles who would become known as Draenei because Draenei means exile in, in Eridar that those crystals were used throughout their journey and they're used on Draenor. We, we, one of them is leaf shadow is one of the Atamal crystals. And we see others when, when you're doing uh, burning crusade, you see the Atamal crystals get used. When you read Rise of, of the Horde and uh, Lord of the Clans, especially Lord of the Clans, you see the Atamal crystals in use. When you see the creation of the Ashbringer, you see a warlock, an orc warlock, a necrolite, using a, a crystal infused with shadow. And that crystal is later purified and changed by the light. The, uh, the paladin Alexandros Mograine destroys his arm taking the the crystal up but when he and other paladins attempt to to destroy the crystal with the light they instead purify it and heal mograine's arm with it that crystal is later used in the creation of the blade ashbringer i say all this to say what is that crystal we don't know the answer to that question but it certainly seems to be related to the origins of the naru why was that crystal on argus we don't know that either why were there Titan facilities on Argus? Because Antorus is a Titan facility. There might have been more, but the planet's kind of exploded a little. So Yeah. Did Sargeras pick the Draenei, the Eridar, the, the because he already knew about their world? Was the world soul of that world related to the creation of, the, of Antorus and the other possible facilities? Was it related to the Atamal crystal? And what did the Naru have to do? These are all questions. I don't have answers to them, but I am pointing out that it is entirely possible that the Naru are somehow related to this. And it doesn't have to be the same as the way Azerite works. It doesn't have to be the blood of the, the world soul or what have you. It could be a lot of possibilities. One of which could simply be that the blood of, of a being like Azeroth has unique properties because it is in touch with all the fundamental forces of creation. Like, we don't know anymore if Azeroth is just a Titan. It might be something that is to a Titan what a Titan is to us. Uh, it could. We know that the essence of Azeroth was drawn upon by the Jailer in his attempt to alter the entire universe. Why was, why was Azeroth the world that connected to... The, you know, the Shadowlands in that moment connected to Zareth Mortis. Why was the Jailer able to affect all creation through Azeroth? Are there other Zareth-type facilities in other realities where that can also connect to Azeroth? And was he going to use Azeroth like a, a way to skip his command into every one of them? Again, don't know. But think about that when you think about the, the effects of Azerite and the similarity to the Naru. And the Naru 
are clearly connected to fundamental forces of the, of the cosmos. We see that when the Danaru wholesale blight with with like the power of the light, they just destroy big chunks of Revendreth. They're obviously these forces are in existence. They exist both in like coordination and in conflict, and you know are enormously powerful. It's it's interesting to think about. I can't say that the Naru are just possibly a, a little bit from wherever they come from. For that matter, we don't really know where they come from, but we do know that if you have a tier of a loon, you can essentially restart the 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 core of a Naru Prime. Why? What connection does a loon have to them? I mean, we've never, we still don't know the answer to that question. But we know that a loon is considered a sister to one of the Eternal Ones. The, the and the Eternal Ones are at least on the same level as Titans, if they're different beings entirely, but they're on the same cosmic level as them. So yeah, there's a lot to think about. But but I don't have an answer to any of this. this same. Is, all I have is more questions. Yeah, and that that's one of the 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 troublesome things about this is that there's a lot of things we don't understand because it hasn't been fully explained and there's not enough breadcrumbs to really make an educated guess yet. Uh, But Azerite being as powerful as it is and being connected with Azeroth doesn't necessarily mean it has a connection to the Naru, but it doesn't eliminate it either. We, and it could just be a similarity of like things are like, are like each other. We don't know. Or it could be a product of that individual essence that is sort of gestating in the, the core of the planet or that is the core of the planet. It's we, also worth considering, too, before, before I let you move on. The reason it might feel similar might have nothing to do with the stuff itself mm-hmm. and to do with the being who is interacting with it. Because every being on Azeroth, every living being possibly in the entire cosmos seems to have a piece of everything in them. I was, yeah, I was actually kind of getting to that, that as well. Like the same thing. I've been saying that for, for years, right? Like since we got Chronicles one, since we got the first glimpse of how the cosmos is laid out with Azeroth at the center, even the grimoire, the grimoire doesn't necessarily disprove yeah, the Grimoire of the Shadowlands, yeah. It doesn't it, the Grimoire of the Shadowlands keeps Azeroth at the center. It, I was just going to say, it keeps Azeroth at the center. It shifts certain things around, but Azeroth is still at the middle. Why? Combine that with the fact that the Jailer is pulling on it. I made a point that I think Azeroth is sort of the, the point, or our material plane is the point where essences of every reality that was created, or every elemental force, if you want to call it, uh, touches. And we see that shadow can exist here. We see that fell can exist here. We see that light can exist here. We see that life and arcane and everything in between can exist here. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not in an unstable way, right? Like their whole fell itself is supposed to be relatively unstable. Like we're told that we see that we've, we've seen forces blown apart by it. We've seen gigantic entities of cosmic power torn apart by it. But yet there are places on Azeroth that remained tainted by the fell, but still present for over a decade at this point. Like it's interesting that that didn't destabilize or go away or cause more destruction than it did. We see fell tainted creatures that aren't necessarily gone. They're there. They exist. So it's it's interesting that Azeroth might be that center point. Now, the one thing I was going to say is if Azeroth is related to the Titans in some capacity, the Titans also seem to have, I don't want to say like a division of power, because they're all exceptionally powerful, but they all had specialties. But the one thing that they couldn't do was see in like the possibilities of what's going on. There is also a possibility that the entity of Azeroth itself is the Titan of possibility or is whatever creature it is of possibility, it can touch and see the light. It can touch and see the void. It can see what path it needs to navigate through all the infinite possibilities, but it's not closed off from it. And as a result, as as itself is sort of that in between. It is like a perfect representation of what we are as creatures that live on this, this planet. We can see what the void tells us where we know that the void will see every possibility and tell you everyone is true. The light sees one path and everything else is wrong. When you get the two of them together, you can see every possibility and determine for yourself what the right course of action is. We are an anomaly because of that. Azeroth may also be an anomaly because of that. So 
maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the Naru. Maybe the Naru are a byproduct of something else. Maybe the Naru are related to Elune. Um, I remember the very first tinfoil hat that I, that I think Anne wrote that made me go, huh, which was that Elune was a Naru. Um, completely off the left field, but also not really. We don't know because Azeroth is still kind of not quite awake yet. I don't really know how else to put it because it's not like it's going to hatch. Azeroth is conscious enough to communicate and react to stimuli. We see that during the Jailer fight because Azeroth fights against the Jailer's influence and empowers us to be able to do something about it. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here that we can't really say that the Naru form similar to Azerite, but we can't say no either. We have no idea. But since we are getting into an expansion that seems like it's going to be dealing with not just dragons, but the true nature of elemental existence in general, it might be something that comes up. You never know. Uh, anything else to add to that one before we move on? No, because it would literally take another 25 minutes. <laughs> I don't think anybody would complain if it did. Yeah, but I, I the idea is forming and it's not done yet. So. But I, I will say this much before we do move on. Back when Chronicle came out, I remember one of the complaints being is that it summed everything up now. And, and now we're not going to have any more mysteries and we're not going to have anything more to discuss. And I think that I remember at the time we were like, are you serious? You think this has wrapped anything up? Oh no, this has made it so much more complicated. There's going to be, we're going to be talking about this for years. Oh yeah. And here we are. Uh, and you mentioned Chronicle of the Shadowlands, which only made it worse because it kind of flipped the map around and it kind of made the, the point, this map is four dimensional. It's not even three dimensional. It's like a fourth dimensional map that you're trying to represent with a picture. There's a reason this doesn't make sense. And it's because you're looking at it as a flat image of something that is not just three dimensional, but four dimensional or even five dimensional. These planes, these realms of existence do not exist in a flat lattice. They, they are, it's, it's more like an orrery, except it extends out one dimension beyond that. And I think that that is something that is going to be very, it's kind of hard for people to wrap their heads around, but, when we finally get to see it, uh, I'm reminded of something that Steve Denuser said about braided spirits and braided essence that, I, that we'll come back to. But I, I'm still forming it, so we should move on. All right. We have a series of questions from Delos here, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, read the. Actually, no, it's not from Delos. It's from a name that I didn't write down. I apologize. Uh, while I was in the Q4 raid, I decided to take my hunter on a tour of Oribos to see what was around. To my surprise, I found some interesting things that I would love to explore further. In the bank, there are two humans just hanging about. Ol Emma and Philia Fentalis. They're looking, uh, they're looking for Gem, Jack, and Jake, and they might be in the Maw. How did these humans get into Oribos? Sunwalker Desco, who is the Dawn Chaser Chieftain. He came to Oribos to look for his wife, Leza, and to let her know that their son is doing well. Of all the people in Oribos, this one was by, by far the most touching. I wanted to help him. I actually ran into Admiral Taylor. He saluted me. I was happy to see him. Synthanos, Wintersong, and Nienna Bladeleaf. Who are they? Both DKs by the look of things. That's all. Can you shed light on any of these, or did you find interesting characters yourself? Uh, so, the humans traveling to Oribos, we kind of have an inkling about that we know that there's a portal that now exists between Oribos and our main cities because the death knights were able to go ahead and open those up we actually travel back and forth between them while we are the mall walker there's nothing that says that a human a living entity can't necessarily travel to the shadowlands death knights seem to be able to ferry them across that that veil just like kyrian do just like uh valkyr do so they could have used the portal. They could have asked for a ride. You never know. Um, there's, I think, something there where they've established that Death Knights can actually bring people across. They can walk them through that veil. So if they really wanted to go to the Shadowlands and look for somebody, I'm actually surprised we didn't see more living NPCs uh, across the various zones, especially now that things have calmed down. As they are looking for answers to those that they've lost or, or trying to reestablish connection with their, their ancestors or people that they loved. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's really about it. Matt, do you have, do you have any comments on that one? I want to know where Grimclaw's uh, previous owner. Oh no, that, that quest yeah. still breaks my heart. Yeah. But I, I mean, like for instance, the two, 
elves, dark, the two elves you see that you mentioned, uh, Synthalos and Nienna, they seem to just be uh, elf death knights. Well, they're they're both uh, originally night elves, but they're dark fallen now, so they probably died. Possibly they died during the destruction of Darnassus. They're actually, they're tribute characters, actually. Yeah, I I didn't, yeah, I couldn't figure out who they were tributes to. I know that there's a thing about the uh, thing that they are tributes to. There's a a role player, a role player in the community by the name of Ella Bladeleaf that created both of these characters. Um, And I believe they were both night elves before the events of uh, the taking of Darkshore and the burning of Darnassus. So I believe that these are the end results of after those events. There's like a whole series of, uh, I don't want to call them fan fictions, but like stories and, and that uh, was written about uh, all of these. Yeah. So that's what they are. Um, trying to think. Sun- Sunwalker Disco, there's a whole deal of Mr. Pandaria about that guy. Uh, and his and their son. Him him and his dead wife and their son. Their son ended up getting taken by the, uh, I can't remember the name of that stupid order. Oh, my God. Not, the order is not stupid, but it's stupid because I can't remember it. It's, it's annoying. Ah. Uh, we do their monastery. Oh, um, it's a yeah, dungeon shadow, in the, the shadow pan. Yes. Thank you. He, he ends up getting taken by them, right? It's, is it them or is it somebody else? I was pretty sure it was the shadow man. I th- I'm going to look it up. Keep talking. Go look it up. Anyway, one of the orders in Pandaria takes his, their child in and trains him because he's born in Pandaria. And so he's thought he's basically considered to be part of Pandaria. So yeah, his son is currently being raised to be a monk. Um, yeah, but that's it. That's all I got for Sunwalker Walker Disco. He's a cool character. If you if you played Horde, you got to see his story and talk to him. He's he's cool. I liked him. I'm glad he showed up. Um, old Emma, in particular, she was the one that if you if you read the Before the Storm novel, she's the old old Emma that wandered around Stormwind for years. If you ever played original in vanilla uh, Warcraft and you played uh, Alliance, she would have been wandering around Stormwind grumbling. And it turned out that her kids had all basically been turned into forsaken by the plague. And so she thought they were dead. And then she gets to meet them again at the, uh, the meeting of the various forsaken and their human relatives. And then of course, you know, Sylvanas kills everybody. So I think they get killed. I'm not sure what happens with them actually, but yeah, she's trying to find them. Uh, it's the golden Lotus, by the way, golden Lotus. Thank you. I could not remember. Oh my God. It was killing me. <sighs> but yeah. So yeah, Admiral Taylor, we've already talked about, I, like I said, I would like to have seen uh, uh, Grimclaw and his get reunited with the various people he loves, who keep dying on him. That poor bear. Um, there's no, I don't. Care, I mean, there's a lot of things I saw that I thought were cool, but none of it's coming to mind right now. Uh, oh, oh, uh, Mancrix, uh, not Mancrix, right? My God, uh, Decimator Orgra. You know, um, Decimator Orgra's husband gives us a quest all the way back in original. World of Warcraft, if you're a Horde player in the Barrens, to go find Decimator Orgra and find out what happened to her. And you do, and her husband is then... See, this is what I'm doing, because for years she was just called Mancrick's wife. Yep. And and I've always found that intensely annoying, that they just didn't give us her name. She was just Mancrick's wife. But regardless, uh, Decimator Orgra, that's that's one I really enjoyed. I thought that was a really great reference and come and comeback. And especially since she's not like super... Like she doesn't dominate the story and she's not like a major thing. She's just there and is cool because she's there. So I would say Decimator Orgra is, is one of my favorite little things I've seen. What about you? So as far as what I've seen, uh, so Zuljin is actually uh, in there. If you happen to be paying attention in Revendreth in near the Halls of Atonement, there's a cellar where uh, I think it's called the Wrathful Soul. And it is very clearly a one-armed troll. Uh, it is Zuljin's model that's there. I thought that was rather interesting. Uh, Warbrave Oro, you can find as far as uh, something that is there. Uh, looks like there, I think somebody mentioned, I was looking online, that there was a tribute to uh, Cookie, the Murloc chef. Uh, there's a body in Maldraxxus that is basically uh, him in the construct quarter. Uh, we see. Oh, Anaya- I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. That's horrible. Uh, Anaya Dawnrunner is actually there. It was a ghostly night elf uh, that was in, I think it was an Alliance quest in Darkshire. Uh, something about, I think it was like being reunited with their lovers. Um, but when you run across them in Ardenweld, they have taken on a, a spiritual form of looks like a uh, saber tooth cat. Uh, we know that we've seen some of the other ones like uh, 
you know, and uh, Alexandros Morgrain is there for sure. We see him. Um, there is a reference to Houndmaster Loxy. Uh, if you do the uh, Let the Hunt Begin quest, I remember seeing that. I took a bunch of screenshots of that because I thought that was absolutely hysterical. Um, the one NPC that we didn't get to see uh, in Shadowlands that I was kind of upset about was Cairn. I am shocked that we didn't see a reference or an event with Karen Bloodhoof. He's been gone for a while. Uh, Bane's been doing a, a, you know, as good of a job as he can. And I understand that there's like the whole thing about, you know, he Bane talks about not going to find his father because he always feels like his father's with them uh, and things like that. But I'm actually genuinely shocked that there was not a reference or a hidden thing for Karen the entire time. Like that's one I would have expected. Um, also, this is an interesting thing too. Dragons in general, I'm a little curious about because we didn't see outside of Ysera, which seemed to be a special case where Elun pushed Ysera to Ardenweld. I'm still incredibly curious what happens to dragon souls when they die. I, I, I have theories. Lay it on us. Well, why did Nosdormu have to use the power of the dragon soul to bind all the moments around Neltharian's death. Why did he have to make Deathwing's death a weird moment in time? Unless there's something... We know that there's a mechanic of resurrection that takes place in Ardenweald, right? Oh yeah, no, we know, for sure. We've seen at least one dragon-like being go through it. It was a a jade serpent-like being, but it's definitely a draconic entity. So it's entirely possible that without that act pinning the soul somewhere, maybe dragons don't even go to the Shadowlands, especially since they were created and empowered by the, by t- the power of the Titans. They might go somewhere else. Cause we know that t- there's a, it's strictly mentioned that Titan souls aren't supposed to go to the Shadowlands, right? Yeah. They're not supposed to like, I mean, Argus, Argus getting sent there, was a uh, part of the jailer's plan to disrupt the place. Right. And we know that technically with all the Titans dying before that their souls didn't like, look at, uh, look at, um, uh, Anar. Anar mm-hmm. definitely died. And we come across them, their soul on Elunaria where their soul is recovering, but it didn't go to the Shadowlands. The soul remained in this realm. And it's quite possible. Maybe that's what happens, at least with these big dragon aspect types that maybe they're, Maybe their their destiny is to return. Like they they don't stay dead. So we might actually see something along those lines. I don't know um, because it would make the the fact that they have a me- mechanic of succession seem kind of weird. Unless the succession is essentially the spirit comes back, but the mind doesn't. You know, because we've seen in 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 the Shadowlands, we've seen that the essence of a being and its its consciousness are very separate. Yeah, well, we we talked about it before with like the the jailer and apparently the pantheon the fragment souls. Yeah, they're not just fragment. That. They're not just fragment souls. They're mantles, right? They're mantles. Well, yeah, but I'm are- I'm actually talking about the fragmented souls that he is collecting. Mm. Because you you get like we've seen with Sylvanas that there is here's Sylvanas being Sylvanas running around doing the things we've expected from her from all the World of Warcraft, and then there's Sylvanas the Ranger General. And they're the same person, but they're separate. Can you do that with a Titan? Can you do that with a dragon, a dragon aspect? Like there's, there's, there, um, there's a lot to this. I, I have theories about it. And I think shadow with going into Dragonflight, we're going to get to see more about it when we go into the Titan facilities that they're sending us to. Um, I know that uh, Alex Straza at one point is sending you to, to basically investigate the secrets the Titans left behind. And to see if, if any of it can be used to restore the dragons to what they to a to a place where they can have children again and you can have their aspects again. So yeah, I think there's this is gonna be connected to everything we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting because there's there's a lot that could skew how that goes, but I don't know, like I think those are the some of the interesting ones we've seen. I wanna get back to the question and move on. Um I think that there is maybe an answer for some of the ones we didn't see, which hopefully we'll find out. But yeah, I can't think of anyone else that I would have rather have seen uh, or any of the other ones that we, that were interesting enough and, and 
to note that we haven't already talked about. So I'm going to move on to the next question here. This one is from, from Delos of Shattered Sun, who happens to be a destruction warlock. We don't get a lot of warlocks uh, answer, asking questions, uh, maybe because we're not dark patrons. Who knows? Uh, pretend you're a non-heroic, reasonably well-informed citizen of one of the larger cities on Azeroth, Stormwind, Silvermoon, Argamar, etc. You've heard of the Scourge, the Legion, the Ebon Blade, and the Ildari, but you don't have any personal experience with dealing with any of them. One day, you're walking through the city, turn a corner onto a quiet street, and there, dressed and armed to the teeth in the style of whichever class is either a Death Knight or a Demon Hunter, etc. From a lore-in-universe perspective, which one would be more terrifying to randomly encounter and why? So basically, Death Knight versus Demon Hunter, what would be more unsettling as a regular uh, regular NPC to run into on the streets of a major city? My personal opinion, I don't think the average citizen at this point, if you're living in a major city, I don't think they really take much notice, right? I don't think there would be a lot of terror in it because unless unless they're like engaged in combat, they've made it through the front gate or they've made it through one of the portals. And so generally speaking, in a what is supposed to be one of the most secure areas that you could possibly live in, whether it's Ironforge or uh, Stormwind or Ogremar, probably reasonably safe to assume that whoever you're about to run into, uh, whether it's going to the barber shop and there's a death like getting a new hairdo, uh, or, you know, heading to the crafting, crafting quarter in, uh, Orgrimmar, And then there's uh, a demon hunter who's, you know, trying on new clothes. I think they're used to it at this point to a certain degree, right? Folks that have been alive have been through several major conflicts, a bunch of cataclysmic events, literally cataclysm, where the world itself was like coming apart. Uh, and we know that Stormwind and Orgrimmar and all the other places definitely felt the effects of that. Uh, I mean, for several years, the front gate of Stormwind had permanently burning dragon claw marks as the gigantic dragon came swooping down and smashed into them so we could get his kids' corpses back. Those corpses were hanging from the gate. Yep. So people who walked into Stormwind walked in under the giant severed head of a dragon for years. And then there was that time that a death knight came to Stormwind and the people pelted it with rotting fruit until it got to the, you know, the keep through that gauntlet of, of, you know, rot and said to the king, Hey, I'm not here to fight. Could people please stop throwing stuff at me now? Uh, I'm here to sign up to fight the Lich King with you guys. It's like I'm going to try to use a real world example. If you if you're living, say, in Cleveland or Cincinnati, they are fine cities. There's there's like I think easy, I think both of them hit the the million people mark. They're, they're big cities, at least five hundred thousand per big cities. Lots going on there. But if if like say the entire if, if the the people that you see in just in one night of the Oscars, the various celebrities, if all those people were in those cities, it would be an enormous deal. But those people can all be in Los, in Los Angeles at any given time, and Los Angeles barely notices. Same with New York. If you're in New York, um, you know, crowned heads of state can be moving through this place at any given moment. It, the major cities of Azeroth are cosmopolitan. I mean, Stormwind is big. It's really big. It's... It's hard for us to really get the scale because World of Warcraft by, you know, just necessity, there's a certain amount of compression going on. But if you go back and watch the the opening of the Warcraft movie, then you actually get a sense of the size of old Stormwind. And new Stormwind is built on it. It is essentially a recreation of that city. It's a big city. Orgrimmar is, is enormous. I mean, think about the fact that there's enough room in Orgrimmar to put the Siege of Orgrimmar raid in. Like the it just goes down and down and down all that. There's all that underneath everything in a world where, you know, there's magic enough that they can just have, they can have a section of town with like just multiple magical portals open. I think actually both Stormwind and Orgrimmar actually have at least two big nexuses of weird portals Yeah, because there's still the ones from the cataclysm over in the, on that Island in, in uh Stormwind. And I believe that the, the terrace in uh Orgrimmar still has theirs too. Yep. So, I mean, to answer your question, just because just because this feels like a cop out, and I don't want to cop out for you, I think that quite frankly, it it you're it's like asking me what's scarier, this grizzly bear or this 
ravenous, hungry, dire wolf. I mean, they're both scary. Uh, I don't know. It's it, it's very hard to imagine the average person wouldn't be frightened of either of them, but they wouldn't be unduly frightened. The respect would be, oh, that is somebody who can kill me. I should not go over to them and bother them. But it wouldn't be, oh, God, the monsters are here because we've seen the monsters come here. We've had that experience. We know what it looks like. They're not doing that. They're just standing there. That particular Death Knight who is terrifying and carries a glaive that is literally made out of the souls of the damned is currently haggling with the cheese shop merchant. And the cheese shop merchant, despite, you know, he's aware that that person is a Death Knight, still wants to get his gold for that cheese. I mean, and you go to Orgrimmar, sure, there's a there's a demon hunter over there. You know, all that seething green fell power, it's, it's hard to miss. But you know, old old lady Gratouche is not giving up on that bone. She wants that, that bone necklace, and she's not gonna gonna take less money for it. And you know, they're they're having a discussion, and that demon hunter certainly looks irritated, but they're not killing anybody. And it's not like Guthar, the gigantic orc mercenary, isn't also terrifying. That guy's like six and a half feet tall and carries swords the size of small boats. And and that other guy over there, Holthorn. Holthorn can turn into a ghostly wolf at any time. You never know when that's going to happen. And but he's you know he, he seems pretty nice most of the time. Comes in, gets his armor repaired. You know, talks talks to you about you know. Oh yes, the spirits are unhappy. I have to head over to to Faralas and get that cleaned up. But you know, everything's everything. Okay, you know, how much do I owe you for like, the banging out the dents in my mail? Oh no, yeah, it's uh, twenty six silver. Oh hey, cool, thanks. You know, th- when you look at it from that perspective, it's like being a character in the Marvel universe. Yes, Thor exists, but people don't really stop and think about what the heck that means. Yeah, like that's that a much. really good way of 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 putting it. Is like, especially in like looking at Marvel movies and stuff like that, they know heroes exist. But like they're not afraid of them. Look at look at uh, No Way Home, Spider Man. Right? What's the first thing that opens up with is Peter's identity getting blown. It takes up picks up right where the second movie left off, and it's New Yorkers not afraid of him, throwing stuff at him, uh, trying to grab a hold of him, chasing him because they're not afraid of him, despite the fact that they know pretty dang well from what they've seen on TV or. You know, maybe they have personal reactions or they've been closer to the sea. He can lift things way, way, way heavier than he should. He could probably punch a hole through them, but they're not afraid of him because they've just kind of gotten used to it at this point. There's a certain amount of we talk about like the numbing effects of overexposure. This has been two decades of overexposure for the average citizen of Azeroth. And especially if they are well informed, which if they live in a major city, they probably are. Uh, and don't forget, like a lot of like the Stormwind army are conscripted soldiers that are farmers, right? They're not career military folks. At the end of the world, at the end of the wars, they turn their swords into plowshares. That's what they do. Um, but like they know they've been on the front lines, or they have know somebody who has, and or they've experienced something, or maybe a chunk of their farm is still floating above it if they're in, you know. Yeah, uh, if you live sorry. in Westfall. <laughs> if you live in Westfall. Uh, remember, you remember that time that old Bessie gets stuck up on that floating rock? Yeah, that was unfortunate. But I think that's kind of an important distinction because in these in these stories, yeah, there's maybe a healthy fear and respect for those that are powerful heroes, but it's really no different than what maybe a commoner would have felt for knights back in in the, the Middle Ages or people that yeah, were... I mean, think like of it this way. Shoguns, uh, or shoguns yeah. and samurai would I was just going to say, reverence. a samurai... A samurai could literally just kill anybody they, you know, any common person they walked past. Anybody who wasn't like a member of the the landed gentry, they, the samurai could just kill them mm-hmm. and just keep going. Like they didn't, they didn't even have to stop to explain it. They could just kill you and step over your corpse and keep going. Even even in provinces that had the equivalent of police, they would just yeah. let them, they they just let them go. No one was going to even try and stop them. Right. So there's so, there's, there's an element of that, right? Like it's mm-hmm. his, historically like. There's a precedent for it. So hopefully that answers your question a little bit. (laughs) But I think we're going to move on to our last one here uh, since we're running out of time. And this one comes from Jack Jack. Uh, And it's which Azeroth ending villain do you think had the best plan? Looking back, who do you think actually could have done it had it not been for us meddling raiders? This is a really good question. And I already know what my answer is, but I want to know, Matt, do you have a villain 
that you think could have gotten away with it? Well, I mean, Cthulhu was going to like straight up Cthulhu's plan had worked. Uh, the, the, the black empire had been recreated. Nihilotha existed again. And all he needed to do was basically move on to the part where he used the, uh, you mean the damage. Yeah. Nizoth, sorry. They're all, they're all tentacles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, Nizoth's plan was going to work just straight up. If we hadn't, and for all we know, it still did. Yeah. I mean, you know, he could have, you know, he could have, as uh, Xanatos gambited us, but I, I, that's a strong contender. Um, Arthas's plan was very solid. Mm-hmm. Um, that came to within like one guy with a really powerful magic sword who was a little bit stronger with the light than Arthas realized. And a crystal, had, a crystal in that blade that we talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah. H- had, had that not happened, Arthas literally would have killed us and re- re- returned us to life as, as members of the, uh, the scourge. And, then he he absolutely would have had the strongest army in Azeroth because look at all the stuff we have gone through or will go through. You know what I mean? Like we've, we've we killed the proven, equivalent of gods. Yeah. He would have had himself an army unlike anything Azeroth had ever seen. And the chances of them having champions good enough to stop us isn't good. You know, that had he, had he successfully pulled that off, it would have worked. You know that the only the only thing that stopped him was basically, uh, you know, Tyrion coming up with enough gas out of the tank to break that sword, and when he did, it let it let his father out, and his father just mass resed us. <laughs> you know, that's that's it. That's the only reason that Azeroth is still here right now, essentially. Um, so yeah, I, I'd go with those two. Uh, there's more like, I, I think Deathwing's plan kind of seemed like it was working up until a certain point. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely go with Arthas on top of, of ice crown Citadel and Nazoth inside Nihilotha. Those two seem to me to be the closest, Nizoth- but I'm sure Joe's got an interesting one. Nazoth is definitely on my list as far as like who, who either got very close to getting his plan completed or actually didn't. We don't know it, but the greatest villain of Azerothian history that, in my opinion, has ever existed or will ever exist was not actually an end uh, end of expansion boss. And it's Queen Azara because Queen Azara has proven time and time again that she is 10,000 steps ahead of us. Even when she is held captive, I'm not entirely confident that that was not by design. Because right, I, I feel like you're cheating here because this was clearly a past tense question could have done it. I think that she is still doing it. So it's not fair. You, you can't I, pull. You, if you, if you can, if you can call Nazoth and we're saying that he might still be out there, I think Azara counts. I feel like you're cheating, but um, I will allow it. <laughs> well, it's it good. Is a good answer. It's a good answer. Be, yes. Again, because like we, she's, I think she is the greatest villain that has ever existed because she is, she is the ultimate Xanathos. She does everything she does is planned. Everything she does. And we don't know the extent of it. And you know what's going to be hilarious? We're not even thinking of her as a villain at this point. Well, I am. But I think it's going to be fascinating when we do finally loop back around to to Shara. Because the greatest swerve they could possibly do would be to have her now just happily enjoying her retirement. Or the greatest swerve they could ever do is since she was one of the original Golden Eyed Elves, is that her great destiny was actually saving Azeroth. No, that I think that's one we would see. But I don't think we would see she she's done. She did it. She succeeded. She got out. She got out of everything. She's, you know, she's free now. Like there's nothing. Nobody has a hold on her. She rules the Naga. She's, you know, incredibly powerful and she's done. Like, what are you going to do to her? Like you're going to attack her for what? Not killing you. Like, you know, it, it is fascinating to me to think about Ashara. Such a, such a character who really, really, really has so much more they could do with. And I don't think she's done. I, I think that there's going to come a point in time where she's going to come back up in some capacity. I would be exceptionally surprised if she does not, especially with everything that's been going on. But that's my pick. And if Matt says it's cheating, I cheat gladly. Nah, here. nah <laughs> I, I'm willing to accept it because of the point you made about Nizoth. But I feel like she's definitely one that I want to see what she ends up doing more than, yeah, than anything. For sure. But hopefully that answers your questions. Uh, we could sit here and talk about villains all day long because I think there's a special place in our heart for the uh, villains of Azeroth as some of them are uh, better written than others and some of them just are a little misunderstood. 
But Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your community support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Again, if you have any questions for this podcast or any of our other podcasts, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or on one of our various uh, Discord channels. And if you are a Patreon supporter, we do give you first dibs. Uh, next week, folks, we have something special lined up. We are going to be diving back into the world of cyberpunk because, man, has that story started uh, evolving even further. In Well, it's going to be a lot of fun, so hopefully you'll join us for that. But until then, we'll see you next week. Enjoy the season of the pumpkin. Spice must flow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.